Pastor Xavier Reese talks about the essence of real faith. Now, works are the outcome of salvation, not the process for salvation. We're saved by grace through faith, that not of ourselves, it's a gift of God, Ephesians 2.89 says. If you're a Christian, God will work in you and through you. If you say you're a Christian, nothing's going on, something's wrong. Either you're real carnal, or you're not a Christian. One of the two. You get to choose. Welcome to Simple Truths, the daily half-hour study of God's Word with Xavier Reese, Senior Pastor of Calvary Chapel of Pasadena, California. There's no question we live in one of the most prosperous nations in the world, but could our very blessing be our greatest curse? Today, as we return to the book of Revelation, Pastor Xavier takes us to the city of Pergamum, and it's here we learn what happens when we let the world get in the way of our relationship with the Lord. You have a Bible, we're going to Revelation chapter 2. And the message is entitled, The Worldly Church, Pergamos. Worldliness is not so much the fact that you have money, material possessions, or even that you work at a secular job. It's a condition of the heart. It's the mindset that depends upon the attractions and the resources of the world to live rather than Christ. We live in the world, but we don't live of it. We depend on the Lord. We hold everything real loose, and we realize that the possessions is not where it's at. Yet God will use possessions and that to do His will and to accomplish the plans of the kingdom. But our mindset's not there. That's where we used to be. This church is going to be addressed very directly because of this. Now, remember, Jesus told His disciples several things that are important. He says that they were the salt of the earth, that they were the light of the world in Matthew 5. We're not to have fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather to reprove them, Ephesians 5.11 says. And there's always that tension that we live in, okay? But yet God has made us new, and we know the difference. We know what we used to be. We know what we are now. We know what God wants us to be. And so we live in tension, but he has equipped us through the Spirit of God, through the Word of God, through the armor of God, to be able to be those who would glorify God. And that is very, very important. These messages, again, are very applicable to us. They're not just to the church of those days, because if it doesn't apply to our generation, then it's senseless even studying these messages. They must apply to us. Again, the message is to a local church in John's day. Secondly, it addresses a period of church history. And thirdly, a type of congregation that can and will exist throughout the church age and maybe the most important for you and I personally, it speaks of a type of a Christian in the church. You can be a Pergamos Christian, one who is worldly. You come to church, you read your Bible, you do this, you do that, but you're in the world. Your mind and your heart is in the world. And so we must pay heed to what Jesus says to this church. Again, the pattern is the same, though some exclusions, sometimes there's no condemnation to a couple of them. But for the most part, you have the proclamation, you have the commendation, you have the condemnation, you have the exhortation, and he finishes with the application. And we see these patterns very much with few exceptions. Now, again, every one of these churches was uh, set in a historical background. So when Jesus addresses them, 
the way he addresses them and the things that he addresses them about are very pertinent to their personal situation. So a background will help us to understand this. So let me give you some historical background with the city of Pergamos. The city of Pergamos was a great uh, city of Asia, the capital for about 400 years, and her name means exalted or elevated. That in itself tells us everything. <laughs> Pride is, is something that is innate in man. And when you want to be uh, admired or looked at or distinguishes something, then we know that, that what's going on is not the Spirit of God. It's always there, very clear. In 282 B.C., it was the capital of the Seleucid Kingdom, which you know came to be through Alexander the Great as he, his kingdom was divided to the four generals. Later in 133 B.C., the III, king of Pergamos, he willed his kingdom to the Roman Empire after his death, and it remained the capital till the close of the first century. The city was located about 10 to 15 miles from the Aegean Sea, 65 miles or so north of Smyrna, 75 miles north of Ephesus. So again, it's like a, like a horseshoe there in the area of Turkey. And think about it. All these churches, seven churches, they were a light to that community. Man, it was bright. Now, Turkey, darkness. What used to be the heart of the gospel to an extent now has become the heart of darkness. Interesting. The city was built on a 1,000-foot high hill around the great Acropolis in the valley of the river Caicos and is viewing from there the Mediterranean deep from a distance. A beautiful city. Um, this was one of the wealthy cities, uh, fashion. Uh, not so much commerce as Ephesus and Smyrna, but yet it was known for its learning, especially for its medicine. Uh, the city had a library of 200,000 parchment rolls, second to the Library of Alexandria, which later Mark Anthony gave to Cleopatra. It was famous for its parchment, in spite of it not being a commercial city. And for many centuries, it used papyrus, you know, from Egypt that grew on the Nile for writing materials. Uh, Pergamos was the first to use parchment. It's interesting, the word parchment, uh, pergamini, uh, is derived from the name Pergamum, and you have that association with that. Pergamum is the neuter of Pergamos, the feminine. So the message is addressed to the church of Pergamos because it's feminine, because this is the church, the bride of Jesus Christ. And yet she's not conducting herself as such. Again, the period 313 to 600 is the period of church history which Pergamos covers. And during this time, after the death of Diocletian and Galerius, Constantine and Maxentinius contended for the throne. Who was going to sit on the throne? Constantine supposedly uh, saw a cross in heaven and a voice speaking to him, conquer. And being told that this was a sign of Christianity, he thought that God was calling him to conquer and to be the leader of Christ and the Christian, quote, quote, religion. He called the bishops to explain their faith. He accepted it, and he appointed himself promoter and protector. Remember that name, Constantine, 312. That's when it begins. Remember prior to this, in the church of Smyrna, 100 to 312 A.D., 6 million Christians were killed. All of a sudden, cold turkey, persecution's over. Now you have to become a Christian. Listen, you cannot force people to be Christians. And when 
that becomes legislated, there's no longer personal relationship. You do it of your own free will. That is the relationship of Christianity. It is never by force. It is never by compulsion. Never. Constantine stopped the persecution. And so he bestowed upon himself this authority, this honor, and honor on bishops and everything. And they began to set on thrones in, in the noble Roman Empire. Um, power corrupts. And absolute power corrupts absolutely. And there is no exception outside the church or inside the church. Many of them gave up the truth of the second coming. And so they began to profess that they had been wrong and that Constantine's empire was the kingdom of Christ. That's why the Catholic Church had to change its theology after the year 1000 because Christ hadn't come back. <laughs> the millennial kingdom, okay? Now, the religion of Pergamos, the city was known for many religions and held the title of, quote, Temple Keepers of Asia for their devotion to, once again, the emperor worship. In 29 BC, the city had the only provincial temple of the imperial cult in Asia in honor of Caesar Augustus. As you know, paganism has not just one god, has many gods. And so you had the temple of Zeus, which was one of the seven wonders of the world in Olympia, uh, Athena, Dionysius, Aesculapius, or Aesculapius, depending on two different pronunciations. Aesculapius, as you know, was uh, the god of medicine. He would be worshipped in the form of a serpent. His former title was Aesculapius Soter, which means savior. Jesus is the only savior. And he makes this very clear to this church. His temples were close, the closest thing and the best thing to hospitals. And they would be filled with serpents. People would lay on the floor. Some would be healed. Some would die. Today we find the serpent on the uh, medical pole for the emblem for medicine. That's where you get it from. Uh, now you remember the Bible also uses the brass serpent in the wilderness where God told the Jews to look upon it and they'd be healed. But it was a brass serpent. Brass speaks of judgment. Serpent speaks of sin. And the pole spoke of the cross. A whole different thing than this. This is idolatrous worship where God used that as their faith in God to obey what he said to heal them. whole different matter. And so here again you have paganism. This is the church that married the comforts of the world, the riches, and the world order to exalt itself, trusting in the arm of flesh, thereby becoming insensate in the things of God, being spiritually deaf, spiritually blind. And that's what happens with worldliness. You grab a hold of it and it deceives you. And so this, is, this was a historical uh, information and background for Pergamos. Now we better understand as he addresses the church very specifically about their condition. Look at verse 12, the proclamation. The identity of the recipient of the letter is to the angel of Pergamos. Once again, the ministers, not the angel, but the minister, okay? And the context is important. Ecclesia, those called out of the world of darkness to the kingdom of God. 115 times in the New Testament. We've made reference to this in the first two churches. And the name Pergamos, again, means higher elevation. Uh, the root word is the word tower, so some have translated it as fortress or citadel. They all have the same understanding behind it. Notice the identity of the writer, again, is Jesus Christ. These are the words of Jesus. These things says. They're not John's word, but the words of Jesus, so we have to pay close attention. Notice the identity is, once again, fitting. 
Our Lord identifies himself to Pergamos as one who has a sharp two-edged sword from chapter 1, verse 16. The word of God is symbolized and used figuratively in the scriptures through many different things. The word is called bread, milk, water, uh, meat, even a sword. In this particular context, the word is ramphelia, which means a judgment sword, a large size sword. The word describes a Thracian javelin as well as the judgment sword that would be carried on the shoulder. And it's very specific, speaking of judgment. Jesus addresses them. He's the one that has the power of life and death. He's already told us in chapter 1 he has the keys of Hades and death, right? He's the one. Notice the sword speaks of judgment then for the worldly person in the church as well as the non-believer. Seven times the word appears in the New Testament. Six of them are found here in the book of Revelation, and the only time outside of it is in Luke 2, 35, where the, Simon the priest, the high priest, tells Mary as she presented Jesus that a sword would pierce her heart. Judgment. He would be raised for the judgment of many and the rise and fall of many as he became sent for us. There is another word that is called mykyra. That's a short dagger sword. Uh, Hebrews 4.12, the word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword. That's close contact. And we've used the word, the, the, the sword that's like that, a dagger, for this warfare that goes on all the time. The word of God is what helps me, what strengthens me, what gives me the authority to live according to God. In fact, Isaiah 49.2 says, And he has made my mouth like a sharp sword, speaking of Christ. We see it in chapter 19 as he comes back with a sharp two-edged sword coming from his mouth to the battle of Armageddon to destroy the kingdom of the Antichrist. Now, the way to avert judgment is to be a doer of the word of God, not deceiving ourselves, James 1.22 says. This is the only way we can avert judgment. The simple teaching of Scripture is that once we're born again, we're to separate ourselves from the world. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11, 2 Corinthians 6, 14 on down. Come out from among them. Don't be unequally yoked. The word sanctification, as you know, means to be set apart. The root word is the base for the word saint, holy, sanctified, sanctification. Same root word. To set ourselves apart. Now that we're born again, we don't live the way we used to. We live differently. Our lives have been changed. We live in the world, but not of the world. We line ourselves with the word of God. Jesus said this in John 17, 15. Father, don't take them out of the world, but keep them from the evil. And so by God's grace, we can live above sin. We're not perfect. We're not sinless. But we can hit the mark now. We have great capabilities through Christ Jesus. In John 17, 17, he says, Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. There's the Lord's Prayer. You want to call something Lord's Prayer? John 17 is it. <laughs> it's through the Word of God that's true, that sets me apart. I understand the will of God. I understand what God says about himself, about me, about sin, about the enemy. I get grounded. Paul declares that we are to present our bodies a living sacrifice in Romans 12, 1 and 2. After 11 chapters of doctrine, to prove it is the perfect will of God. He's the one that sets the rules. He's the one that sets the course. And so we become holy and we live holy because he is holy, as 1 Peter 1.16 says. It's by virtue of who he is and what he's done in us, not by something that we do within ourselves. And so Paul is very, 
very direct with the Thessalonians uh, as he writes to them in 1 Thessalonians 4, 4 and 5. He says, For this is the will of God, even your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you should know how to possess your own vessel in sanctification and honor. Why is the Bible so strict and so adamant and so consistent on mentioning sexual immorality, fornication, adultery? Because wherever you have idolatry, you have sexual sin. It's just that simple. They go together. Young people worship somebody. What do they do? They give themselves to them. Idolatry and sexual involvement go together. You can't separate them whether it be in an idolatrous way with idols or with just the regular sinful passions of the fallen nature. They go hand in hand. You cannot separate them. And by the way, it's a worship of demons, as we'll move on and we'll find out. And so this was the proclamation to Pergamos, very direct. Notice now the commendation in verse 13. Jesus knew what they were doing and had done in the past. The word to know, oida, as you know, intellectual knowledge. To understand, to perceive. It was used in the first two churches. Here it is again. The word works refers to that which they had been occupied in the past and even now in the present. They were undertaking. So God's aware of everything. What goes on, why it goes on, how it goes on. This is just a simple principle of scripture. Nothing escapes him. And we should not deceive ourselves about that. Now, works are the outcome of salvation, not the process for salvation. We're saved by grace through faith, that not of ourselves, it's a gift of God, Ephesians 2.89 says. Many people say, well, you're teaching works. No, I'm not. But James says, listen, I'll show you my works, and that'll be evident in my faith. But you tell me you have faith, where's your works? If you're a Christian, God will work in you and through you. If you say you're a Christian, nothing's going on, something's wrong. Either you're real carnal, or you're not a Christian. One of the two, you get to choose. <laughs> Notice Jesus knew where they dwelt. The word dwell means to settle down, to dwell. It's a fixed place. It's used for Christ dwelling in our heart by faith in Ephesians 3.17. It is used of the Holy Spirit dwelling in the believer in James 4.5. The dwelling of the Christian is temporary as a sojourner, a pilgrim here on earth. But it's permanent as a dweller with God that begins on earth and moves on to heaven. So we're just strangers. We're just passing through. Notice Jesus knew the place that they dwell was Satan's throne. The period of history, again, 313 to 600. We already saw Satan's synagogue in Smyrna, which is 100 to 312 AD. Now we have his throne. He has established his throne, his stronghold. It's right in the midst of the church. Caesar worship followed passionately. The city boasted of being the official temple sweeper of Caesar's temple. Rome had the problem because it was so vast. How do you unify the kingdom, the empire? This is what they did. They brought Caesar worship. That settled it. But think with me as we continue in Revelation. What's going to happen in the Great Tribulation in the middle of the seven years? The Antichrist builds a temple and he declares himself to be God and he gives a mark to everybody and everybody has to worship him or they die. The last empire, the ten-nation confederacy, will be united again through Caesar worship, the Antichrist. The exact same thing. People were moving there. We're moving towards that. Once a year, you know, they burn the pinch of incense. They said, Caesar's Lord. They give him their certificate. After that, you could do whatever you want as long as you didn't bring dissension or problems to the kingdom. 
Interesting. The altar of Zeus was elevated there 800 feet from the plain below, visible for miles. We see the things that we exalt here in the world, in America, as, as the things that have priority in life, and really they have no, no priority in terms of really what true value and, and true importance is. People have missed the mark. Later on, we're going to see that the depths of Satan will be found in um, the teaching of Jezebel in the church of Thyatira, which comes next in chapter 2, verse 24. So Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira. And that doesn't stop there. Satan is seen visible in all that. So we must understand that the throne is to be seen from the perspective of authority and power. All of a sudden, Jesus is not in control. Remember, he revealed himself as the one that has the stars in his hand in control. But he never forces himself, so people turn away, and all of a sudden they allow the world to control them, the satanic aspect to control. Very important. Remember, Constantine joined the church of the world, married her, made her a state church, killed her, killed her. It's the worst thing that could ever happen. Satan tried to persecute the church, but instead it grew. So Satan says, ah, I know what I'll do. I'll marry her to the world. Accomplished his goal. Now notice there in verse 13, Jesus knew they were holding fast to his name and not denying his faith in the midst of persecution. The name of Jesus implies who he is. He's the God-man, deity and humanity. They were the few, the remnant. The church is being rebuked by God. Repent, as we're going to see. But there were the few. So we have to be careful. They still had faith in the doctrine of Christ, referring to all that he is and all that he has revealed about himself and the word. The word is objective truth in the Bible. Not subjective. It's what does it say about God? And I believe and I commit myself to that. They were not denying his name and faith in his name under the pressure of persecution. They were being faithful witnesses. The name and faith always go together. Never forget that. What is believed about Jesus must be based upon the scriptures. Not tradition, not opinion, not human speculation or subjective teaching. We must always compare it to the word of God. The Arian controversy, as you know, in 325 A.D. in the Council of Nicaea was to protect the deity of Christ. They were denying it. The modern-day Jehovah Witness are those Arians who deny the deity of Jesus Christ and anybody else who falls in that category. Here we begin to see the roots of the Roman Catholic Church. The mixing of biblical truth with paganism. In Thyatira, the next church will be the full development of that system. Notice Antipas is an example here of a faithful martyr under the system of the Roman Church. And our Lord here identifies him as his own, by his own phrase, my faithful. His name is a diminutive of Antipaters, which means like the Father. Faithful are those who confess Jesus to not deny the faith. For the sword of judgment dispels all fear to those who are faithful. But to those who deny the faith, the sword should instill fear. I am amazed how many people know the truth, they've walked away from it, and they don't fear. It's called deception. It is required that a steward be found faithful, 1 Corinthians 4, 2. And so this was a commendation to Pergamos. There were a few faithful. 
faithful. You stand. You be a person of character. Don't follow the world. Don't follow anything. You check the scriptures. You make sure that it's right on. You make sure that it's what the Word of God says and not what men are saying about the Word. Very important. Pastor Xavier Reese reminds us to be true to the Word no matter what anyone else is doing. Now you can request a copy of today's challenging study from the book of Revelation titled The Worldly Church Pergamos. You can pick up a copy for just $4 on CD. This is one message you'll want to pass along to those you fellowship with. The title to ask for once again is The Worldly Church Pergamos. Or simply mention today's date when you write Simple Truths. 2200 East Colorado Boulevard, Pasadena, California, 91107. Or to make your request by phone, call 800-926-1485. Again, that's 800-926-1485. Or the address once again is Simple Truths, 2200 East Colorado Boulevard, Pasadena, California, 91107. And thanks for including the call letters of this station when you contact us. Scripture tells us God will never leave us or forsake us. But what happens when the church forsakes the Lord? Find out when you join Pastor Xavier Reese as he brings us more simple truths from the book of Revelation. That's next time. Simple Truths with Pastor Xavier Reese, a daily half-hour broadcast, is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel of Pasadena, California. www.calvarychapelpasadena.com 